When I was at the seminary, people began quite often talking about something called the third use of the law. And it was a puzzle to me. Now, I heard them talking about the law, but I didn't know what maybe was considered to be the first use of the law or maybe the second use of the law because that language, at least where I was going to school, was not used. They talked about the third use of the law. So that was a puzzle to me. And um, what it did strike home, however, was that I was in a Lutheran seminary. And the Lutheran church, from its very inception with Martin Luther, had a way of coming into the scripture. There are different, there are different doorways that are used going into the scripture. And the Lutherans had chosen the idea that the best way that we can receive, dig into, understand the message of the scripture is through the use of law and gospel. And so as I looked at the text this morning in Romans chapter 7, honestly, I couldn't come up with any, any better title than just that. So I decided to say, well, here we are. We're going to look at law and gospel. And that's what, that's what we're doing this morning. The text is found in chapter 7 of uh, Romans, Probably one of the parts of that uh, wonderful book that I have struggled with, one of the reasons I've struggled with it, is that Paul uses a, uh, an example right in the middle of that text that um, was hard for me to understand, hard to understand for this reason. Was Paul putting that example in there because he wanted to highlight that example? Or was that example used to direct our attention to something much more important and uh, more pervasive in terms of the message he wanted to share with us? I think you'll catch that. When, uh, when we read this text this morning. So, um, if you would please, let's stand and I'm going to read for you Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now that's the... That's the example that Paul used. 
To digress for just a moment, in conversation with my son Charlie, we thought, you know, she he could have used other kinds of examples coming out of the uh, the teaching of, for example, the Ten Commandments, but he chose this one, and so that's what we have. Uh, and it is an example. So we go on. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. That's the bigger picture that he's describing in that model. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and in and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Well, Lord, you want us to understand the importance of the law And Paul sure put it before us this morning. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit who inspired him to write it, that that same Spirit would move in our hearts to bring home the message and to bring home the wonder, therefore, of the gospel of Jesus. It's in his powerful name that we pray. Amen. Now you can sit down. Well, if I were not, if I were looking for a text to really, uh, that I would love to preach on this morning, I have to confess to you, I would not have selected this text. Um, Because I find that, I find it just a text that's difficult to, to work with. And, 
Yet, guess what we're doing here at Community of Joy? We're following the epistle lessons, and today the epistle lesson is Romans 7, 1 to 13. And I think that, um, I think that Danny skipped out just because he didn't want to deal with this text himself. So, here we go. Uh, first of all, there apparently are three ways of looking at the law. Charlie and I, Charlie is my son, by the way. He's a, he's a pastor in the Missouri Synod Church. And we were, we were looking at this together and he said, you know, I suppose there probably are more than three ways that we can look at the law if we want to. But this is what the Lutherans have decided on, so we do it. The first, the first use of the law, apparently, for the Lutherans, is that which is found in Romans chapter 13, the first two or three verses, where Paul tells us that we are to be very mindful of the way in which the authorities of the world in which we live have a responsibility toward us and we are to follow and obey them. And then it goes on to say something about... Uh, and when you do good, they will reward you for your goodness. And when you do bad, they will reward you for your badness. And I, in my rather cynical way of saying, yeah. But when those authorities turn that around and they call that which is good bad and that which is bad good, then what do we do? And I'm not going to answer that question. But... Uh, but it, it's an interesting way of saying that's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is the fact that we can take a look at the Ten Commandments and we can see a pattern that God has given us in terms of a way in which we can live in human community and live very well. You follow the Ten Commandments, and, and you will be living a very good life. Second use of the law. Third use of the law, however, which is really the meat of the matter, as far as I'm concerned, is that God gave us the third use of the law to kill us. Hmm. I saw that in many of your faces. Hmm. Well, what happens here? The third use of the law tells us that the law has come in so that when you live out your life as a human being, sin is so deeply entrenched in your mind, in your heart, in your, in your whole being, that you and yourself just simply can't live out all of the goodness you would love to live out in your life. You, you are tarnished. You are, you, you have that loathsome thing called sin really deeply entrenched in you. And God gave us the law to demonstrate to us that he, you're not kidding. You really do have 
that loathsome thing called sin in your life, and he wanted to make it so loathsome that you would not miss the point. That's that's verse 13, in case you didn't catch it, in our text. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Well, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Okay? So, how does that happen? What we, what we depend upon is that in order to in sin, in order to make us recognize the fact that in sin we have just been uh, just been blown up against a wall that just won't move. We don't have a place to hide. We don't have anything, any way to really get away from it until someone else comes into the picture. And I'll get back to that in just a few minutes. God has convinced us that we're not good enough to really be good. Our journey here on earth is really the first chapter, however, of a very long journey. Remember that. You weren't made to live forever on earth. But you were made to live forever. That was God's initial plan for every one of us in this room this morning. And he made that plan and he he took that plan so seriously that he wanted to be with you forever. That he took the terrible, loathsome road of getting rid of that sin the hard way, not the easy way. He sent his son to take that load upon himself on a cross in order that you and I might be set free. So, Jesus takes our sin into himself and is killed by their suffocating weight. Jesus suffered on a cross, but the real suffering that day was not through nails, through hands and feet. It was through the terrible, terrible reality of all of the collection of sin from the beginning of man to the end of time for man coming into his body and dying with that weight. That was a cruel, terrible, terrible uh, uh, way of dying. And so... We hear 
Jesus finally on that cross saying, and these, if, if you, if you really take into consideration the fact that, that God the Father and Jesus agreed in heaven that the Father would send Jesus to this earth for this, for this chapter, for this purpose. Then you, then you hear Jesus cry out on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that was not just a rhetorical question. That question has a very good answer. Now, at the time, the father answered that question was something that in itself was terrible and hard, and that was silence. But what is the answer to that question? Yes. I have forsaken you because you are absolutely filled with every sort of sin that separates a sinful person from me. You have taken it upon yourself. You are filled with it. And I can't, therefore, bear even looking at you. And so Paul says that the law came in to make, make sin terrible and that it might become sinful beyond measure. And when we see this happening to, to the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, with all of our imperfections killing him, sin becomes very a personal, it becomes a very personal issue with each of us, and it becomes a terrible issue. And that's what the law intends us to understand. Because then we begin to understand the importance of Jesus Christ. And we don't take Jesus Christ casually. It's no casual matter that you have come to know him. That he has introduced himself to you. And he has introduced himself to you as a friend. As a real friend. And when you take sin seriously, you understand the depth of that friendship. Does that make sense to you? That kind of, that kind of catch? The reason why Paul also says that the, the law is not bad. The law is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Why is it a good thing? It's a good thing because it opens the eyes of the one who will be willing to hear it that they need a Savior. And Jesus Christ has come into our lives as that Savior. So let's come up for air. Why does Paul say that the law is good? Well, let's take a look at another picture that you have so often looked at. And... Um, 
and, and, and see if we can't get inside of something for just a moment. And that picture is what happened that day in the minds and the hearts of his disciples when Jesus was crucified. The first thing that they did, and you uh, you remember that from uh, from the uh, from the scripture, is that they all ran away. Well, John didn't run away, and Peter stood stood around for a while until he was kind of exposed at that fire, you know, by that girl who said, "Hey, you're one of his, aren't you?" And it was getting too hot for Peter, and so Peter, well, first of all. Coming out from the praetorium was Jesus, bleeding, staggering under the weight of that crossbeam of the, of the crucifix that's going to kill him. Looking at Peter, and that was just too much. He crumbled, and he too ran away. But there they were. They were, they were watching from a distance. I don't know. I can picture in my mind that those disciples didn't just simply run away into the woods or into the desert somewhere. Uh, they ran far enough away so they could hide. Hiding was a big deal for them on that day. And so they were close enough so they could peek around a corner and see what was going on. But that was about as close as they dared get to this situation. And then something else horrid really happened. A guy who was a friend of theirs by the name of Simon of Cyrene came innocently into the, into town at that moment and and there were a bunch of Roman guards who were really strong guys. Now, I believe Simon of Cyrene was a tough guy in himself. He was nobody to monkey with. But here he was surrounded by probably a, a, a hundred of these soldiers. And they were moving him towards some place where something was happening. And what was happening was that Jesus had staggered and fallen under the weight of that cross. And Simon was the guy the soldiers elected to carry that cross for Jesus. And when Simon got there, it just blew him away because he recognized Jesus. He knew him. He was the... Father, after all, of Alexander and Rufus. And I can just see in my mind that a few weeks earlier, Rufus uh, had some kind of a malady and Jesus had healed him, had, had come up and had blessed that family. And now here Simon was in front of Jesus on his knees, groveling in the dust couldn't stand up. And so Simon took that cross and carried it for Jesus. You know, I have something else kind of circulating in my mind. Why didn't Bartholomew 
come to Jesus' rescue about that time? Why not, why not Thomas? Why not Matthew, the tax collector? One of Jesus' own disciples. Why wouldn't they come out of hiding and take that cross upon themselves? A question that's left up in the air. They were so absolutely overcome by fear that they, that they couldn't act. They couldn't act. And there they gathered that evening and then into the next day and then into Sunday in that, in that little house nearby. And they shut the door, they locked it, they put the shutters up, they locked them. They were absolutely fear-stricken. Fear was so palpable you could cut it with a knife in that place. And then they were listening for sounds. They were wondering what that sound might be. Was that, was that the sound that came from a foot that one of those Roman soldiers dragged along as they were coming for them? Is it possible? They were scared to death. And then all of a sudden, in that fear-filled room, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, Shalom, peace be with you. And then he said, in order to really help them understand that it was really Jesus himself who was here and not somebody else impersonating him, said, I'm hungry. You have something to eat? And guess who it would have been in that group that ran to the kitchen? Who? Who? Come on. Martha. Martha. Dazed, trembling, ran into the kitchen, cut a piece of bread, put some of that of that uh, little fish that they had on that bread and with trembling hands brought it out to Jesus, their master, their friend, the one who had died, who is now alive. And in that setting, that room turned from a room filled with fear to a room that was absolutely overflowing with delight. You can hear them talking. Yeah, maybe there were still some tears, but have you ever had the experience with something in your life that you, you were so overjoyed that you were crying at the same time that you were laughing? Have you ever had that experience? It's, it's a tasty experience. It's wonderful. And I think they were tasting that really very deeply in that setting. And they talked and they shared and, and that, that group of people were changed instantaneously with the coming of Jesus into their presence. And then he said somewhere along the way, 
As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you into this chaotic, sin-filled, dangerous, Roman, Greek world with the message of salvation and hope for release from our sins and the privilege of being acceptable in the sight of our Father in heaven. And these guys and these gals went out from that, from that room and they went throughout the world and they did exactly what Jesus said they should do. They went out penetrating that terrible, dangerous world and they were willing, they were fearless. Now, they were humble. They weren't arrogant in their, in their fearlessness. There was no arrogance with them. They were humble, but they were fearless. And boy, when you have that kind of a combination in, in somebody who's bringing you a message, you know what? You listen. You listen to that. So there they went. And um, you and I are here because they went. Somebody told a story about Jesus. And then that person was so overwhelmed with that message that he lived or she lived that message and told somebody else and then somebody else was told, and then somebody else was told, and even somebody else told some Norwegians and Danes, and, and, and that message really struck, really struck in the hearts of people who heard, and they finally got that message to Egan, and to you, and here you are. And you don't take Jesus casually. It is not a matter of taking him casually. It is not as though Jesus is some kind of a peripheral piece of, of, of dressing that you put on. Jesus is the very center of your life because Jesus is the one only who can take the garbage out of your life, who has, by God's grace, taken that garbage out of your life and has taken it into himself and from himself, as, as the scripture says, thrown it away into the depth of the deep blue sea. And what does that signify? It signifies that the things that you would otherwise be scared to death about is gone, and the Father will never see it. He has chosen not to see it, and you are set free. And that's law and gospel. And we're out of time. And I was going to take the third point of this message and spend some time in Erwin Lutzer's wonderful book, 
no reason to hide. And I will just simply call your attention to it. This is a book, by the way, my dear brothers and sisters, that I would love to read through together with the members of this congregation so that we could generate a conversation around this book and talk to one another. Really begin talking to one another about the world in which we live and how, what kind of a role we play in this world. Finally, I just want to say one more thing. I have come to love Community of Joy Lutheran Church. This place for me has, has been a place of healing. It's been a place of delight. It's been a place of encouragement. It's been a place of irritation. It has been a place where we have struggled with things. It's, and we're, and we're here. And we're here together. We're here as brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and we are not here accidentally. We are here because we don't take Jesus casually. And we are here because we have a responsibility of going out and penetrating this terribly dark world that is getting darker. I'm not a pessimist. It's just real. We've got to face that reality. And the reason why we have the privilege of facing it is because we belong to one another. We're here together. And we know how to talk to one another. Don't we? And so, we will. We will. And this world will have a place where it can come. People can come here. And if you bring them here, if I bring them here, there is one thing that we can be certain of, and that is those people will be introduced to Jesus Christ because he truly is the center of the message that we hear at Community of Joy. That is a... That is becoming a rarity, my dear people, a rarity in this world. Let's not forget what we have as a privilege of, of, of receiving when we come here. And next to closing, closing, uh, Pastor Danny has blessed Val and me in a very, very special way. When he introduced us to that devotional book, For the Love of God, some of you have picked it up and are reading that. That book is pure gold. And For the Love of God, and, and you know, it, it's a wonderful way to get into the Word, and you'll, it takes a lot of time. That, that devotional is heavy-duty stuff, wonderful stuff, well, well put together. But um, Val and I have the privilege of uh, using our retirement years 
in such a way that on those days when, when I'm not driving a truck, we are in that Word and we'll spend two hours together in the Word, talking, praying together. We haven't done that since we were in Brazil, for heaven's sakes. So to Pastor Danny, I just have to say a deep, deep thank you for putting in our hands something that is blessing the socks off us. And it will you too, if you pick up on it. For the love of God, it's a wonderful devotional book. We have to quit. The Lord bless the word on your heart. May he bless it on mine.